This morning, I wanted to take a, a few minutes to look at something that was uh, a little more personal. And so we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3. And, and if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me. We're going to be at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And I do want to mention something up front. I know that, uh, that every week we try to put notes in, and we, and we have people that faithfully take notes. And, um, and if I ever miss a point, you know, people come up and say, what was that point? I need to write it in. And, and this morning, if you look at the notes, we have three main points. And, uh, and as I prayed about it, I just realized I felt like God is just, I, I do that on Friday. And, and as I've really prayed about it the last couple of days and worked on it, I feel like God's calling me to spend more time on points one and two, and we're not ever going to get to point three. And so you can cross that out, and if you need to fill it out, then uh, just know that it's, we're not going to get there this morning. So just so advance warning uh, for those that, that need to fill everything in. Uh, let me go start by reading the passage we're looking at, Philippians 3, starting in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of this time, the privilege of being able to come to your word. Father, I thank you for the things that you're teaching me and the way that you're challenging me. And I pray that you would now speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help this, this word of yours to go through my heart and my mouth, Father, by your spirit to touch the hearts of each one that's here. Father, help us to have hearts that are open to hear and to respond and to, to, to send your love and grace into our lives. I pray your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. And when I was in college, I did an internship at a church where the senior pastor taught myself and all the other interns, that, that he thought that the pastor's job was always to be the model that everyone else should follow, uh, meaning that the pastor should present himself as the model of ideal Christian living. And so he taught us, you know, when you teach on a subject, you should always teach with the confidence that you know that with certainty that your opinions are right. And, and as a pastor, you should always look right, you should act right, and, and never show any flaws. And that was his opinion and his wisdom. Now, even then, I understood that there was one really significant problem with this advice. And that is, even then I understood that there was no such thing as a pastor without any flaws. You know, I knew that there wasn't a pastor whose opinions would always be 100% certainly right. I knew there was not, no such thing as, as anyone, let alone a pastor who never struggles. And so even then, being in my only 20s, I understood that, that his advice wasn't that, okay, this is who you're to be because none of us are that. His advice was really saying, this is how you should present yourself. You need to present yourself as the image of one who is of confidence and infallibility and, and, and the pastor should polish the right image and, and look the right way and hide struggles and doubts because that's what people expect. Now, let me ask you, was this good advice? Do you think that's biblical advice? It's given by a pastor? Is it, is it what the Bible teaches? 
Is it what the Bible teaches for any of us, let alone for pastors? Now, understand that within some denominations and within many churches in the American culture, these are the values that have been taught. Uh, this is in often place, in many places, the norm. It's accepted as truth. But I want to tell you, too, that the more that I have thought about these things, the more reflected on God's word, the more that I've reflected on what the Bible teaches in my own life, what I realized is not only is this teaching not in the Bible, but I'm more and more convinced that it actually goes against what the Bible teaches. It's the opposite. And now some might object, well, wait a second. You know, a few minutes ago, we read Philippians 3.17. And isn't Paul presenting himself there as the model, as the, as the guy that has it together? Look what he says in Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Isn't that Paul saying, you know, I'm the guy that has it together. I'm the guy that you should look to as, as the one we should follow as an example. Now, if you take this verse out of context, I could see how you'd come to that conclusion. But a terrible way to study the Bible is to take a verse out of context and read it by itself and, and jump to conclusions is what its meaning is. What we have to find is, as in every verse, you have to look at the context. You have to look what's around it so that even in the context, it's describing what the model is that we're to follow. See, that's the question we have to open with. What is the example that Paul is calling us to follow? When he says, follow my example, imitate me, what is the model, what is the example that he's calling us to follow? Is it a, is it a model of perfection? Of, I've got everything right? No, clearly we're going to see that that's not at all what he's teaching. The model is actually one of humility, one of, of admitting his weaknesses, one of surrendering to the grace of Jesus Christ. He's not presenting himself as a model of the one who is, by his performance and by his strength, is doing it all right, making all the right decisions. And No, he's presenting himself as a model of the process, of surrendering to God's grace, of learning and acknowledging his weaknesses. Now, I want to tell you, as I have reflected on this and as I prepare for it, and as I have prayed for God's leading and what to share I really believe I'm not only going to, God's calling me to, in a sense, explain this is what it means, but seeking to apply these meanings, part of what that means is that I need to share some of what God's teaching me, some of my own struggles through this all. And I realize as I think about this, you know, there may be some that you have that traditional view that I was raised with that, you know, well, the pastor is the guy that never shows any weakness and has it all together. And, and, and if that's what you think, I'm going to probably upset you some, and you're going to have a low view of me coming out of this. Um, but I want to tell you that if that's what you think, I don't think it's a biblical view. And as part of my teaching God's word, I really believe that I have to not only teach, but I have to model what it says. And that means in this case, risk even losing the respect of someone risk, you know, upsetting someone in some way, because it's more important, I really believe, to be faithful to teach God's word, to be faithful to be the model for you that Paul sought to be in the book of Philippians. Now, as we look at this, let me step back and say, let's look at the big picture and what Paul is teaching here. The big picture is it's all about grace. It's all about a relationship with God. The overarching theme is that we have this relationship with God purely as a result of grace. 
But even as we understand grace, it's important to realize that the Bible teaches that there's three distinct aspects of God's grace. It's not only here, but it's actually something taught throughout the New Testament, that there are three aspects that are related, but, in some, but also distinct. And, and in a sense, there are past, present, and future tense of what God has done, what God's doing, what God will do. Probably when we talk about being saved in God's grace, probably the most familiar is when we talk about the fact in the past presence. If you're a Christian, you pray to receive Jesus, you have been saved. We often use the theological word justified, that we are made just before God. We have been saved. There's a sense that when we come to Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, this is in your past. If you're not a Christian, this is an invitation to you. If you're a Christian in your past, when you ask Jesus to forgive your sins, at the cross, your sins are paid for, they're forgiven in Jesus Christ, and therefore we stand before God as just, as holy. See, justification seeks to answer the question, how can we as sinners stand before a holy God and expect anything but his condemnation? And the way that we do is that we understand that Jesus came, he lived the perfect life, he earned God's reward through his righteous living, but yet he took the cross, and at the cross, he took not only death, he took our sins, our, the punishment for our sins. He defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. And as a result, all those who believe in him, God takes our sins, he puts it on Jesus, he gives us Jesus' righteousness, and we stand before God as just. Now, that's what Paul talks about in the verses right before what we're reading this morning. Philippians 3.9, look at what he says. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's this righteousness before God, not based on what we do, not based on my own law, by my keeping the law, but based by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. And what do we do? We acknowledge our need. We admit that we're sinners, that we need that. We acknowledge that Jesus is the provision and we bring our weakness to him and we ask him to give us his grace, his gift of grace, of forgiveness. It's, it's purely grace. Now that's the past tense. The, the other second tense, it's, it's actually I would say the third in, in, in order, but for us this morning, the, the, the second one is, is the future. It's what's often referred to as glorification that there's a sense that we will be saved. We haven't received everything yet. There's still something yet in the future, the future aspect of our salvation. In our future, we will be glorified. There will be a day that we will be like Jesus, that is, he rose from the grave and received a perfect body and, and is glorified in heaven with his Father. One day that will be our reality as well. That's what Paul speaks about at the end of Philippians 3. And he looks forward to this future sense. Look at what it says, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. It's not what we have. It's something we await one day in the future. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now again, here's what we realize. Just like justification, this is effortless. What do we do to accomplish our glorification? You know what most of us do? We actually do something. We die. It's kind of like, okay, when I die, then God does the rest. You know, all I bring is my death. That's all we do. Everything is of God. 
And so we look at this, and here's the bookends. You see, in the past, we have been justified. In the future, we will be glorified. But then there's also a present tense. There's something that God is doing in us now, a present tense of salvation, of grace. And that's often referred to theologically as what they call sanctification, that we are made, being, literally being made more holy. We are being saved. And here's a question. Now, when we talk about justification, we bring nothing to the table but our need, right? We just come and say, God, here's my need. By grace, we are saved through faith, not of works. Glorification, all we do is we die. We bring our death. God does the rest. How about sanctification? Is that God's work or is that our work? Is that our responsibility? Now, if you look at the passage here, it seems like Paul is saying that it all is all our work. Look at verses 12 through 14, if you have your Bibles open, and look at the, the words of straining, of effort. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in, in Jesus Christ. And here's the problem is that some Christians will focus just on the bookends and say, okay, I'm saved by faith. I believe Jesus. I got fire insurance. One day I'm going to be you know, glorified. And they totally you know, ignore the middle. I can do whatever. You know, God's grace isn't here. I can do whatever because I know I have been saved. I will be saved. And they totally miss this whole middle part of life. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Philippians 3, the verses we're looking at today. But other people will look at it and say, well, there's nothing that we do. Other people will look at it and say, well, God did this part, God does this part, and I'm totally responsible. This is all my effort. There's a part that we play, but the whole nature of grace is God's gift. This is still God's gift. There is a sense that it is hard work, that it's something that we're surrendering to God, that, that there's a place, a role that we play, but it's not just self-discipline. You see, it's not just effort. It's not, okay, now that you're a Christian, try harder, do harder, study more, learn more. No, that's not it. See, if you have any question about that, all you have to do is to look back at the first part of Philippians 3. In the first part of Philippians 3, Paul talks about how, how he used to describe himself by his religion, by his rule-keeping, by how well he studied the law and how much he did. And, 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 he, and he talks about, you know, I was, I w I was the extreme and then he concludes by saying, but then I realized it was totally worthless. Look at what he says about his conclusion of this in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, meaning whatever I accomplished by my own efforts, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have uh, suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Literally, when he talks about there, I mean, he counts some rubbish. Um, it's actually somewhat of a, a profane word I won't use here, but it just, it's, it's, um, what's right, what's it, even, it's, it's a load of crap, okay? That's as best as I can come. It's a, uh, it's, it's, that's as safe as I can come. And, and, he, and he calls it that to get our attention. And he says, I just realized that it's a pile. It's, it's you know, it's, it's worthless, uh, because here are all the things that I did that were my identity. They actually kept me from discovering the true identity, which is a relationship with Jesus. 
And they said, what is that true identity? Verse 9 again, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Again, so the context is he's talking right after religion is worthless, effort is worthless. And then right after that, he says, but now I stress on, I press on, I strive. Clearly what he's not saying is, I used to live by religion and effort, And now that I know Christ, now I just have a new resume and I'm still living by religion and effort. That's not what he's saying. Clearly, that's not what he's saying. So if he's just attacked religion and effort, and then he calls us to strive, what are we called to strive towards? What is the striving? What is, when he says in verse 13 that we press on toward the goal for the prize, what is the prize that we're called to press towards? What is the goal? What is the focus of this effort, the focus of the striving? Again, before it was religion, I'm doing, I'm trying. Look at what he says in verse 10. It's not left us to guess. It's not, well, here's what you think, here's what, let's go back in the context. He explains it right there. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. You know what he's saying? The whole purpose of my pursuit, the whole purpose of everything that I'm doing, it isn't getting more knowledge, it isn't getting more education, it isn't trying harder to obey the rules, it isn't somehow being, doing enough good works. No, my whole focus is the prize is to know Christ. It's about a relationship. Before it was about a religion, it was about what I do. Now I recognize it's all about a relationship. It's all about knowing him. And the more that I focus on my effort, my goodness, how hard I try, the more it takes me away from really a true relationship with Jesus. But what does it look like? How do we get there? And what Paul does is in this middle part, he's describing sanctification. We have a role, but it's grace. It's not effort. But he describes what it looks like. He, he literally re-describes what it means to be spiritually mature. It's because oftentimes we think of that picture of maturity as what I was taught as a young man. You know, to look good, perform right, have no doubts. No, look at what he says. In verse 17, we started with it earlier. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example of you have. Now, again, it can sound like he's saying, I've got it together. I'm, you know, it almost sounds arrogant. And, but look at the context. See, go back and look at the verses before that because he's saying, follow my example. Well, what is the example? Look at what example he explains in verses 12 through 16. Look at what he says, starting in verse 12. Is he saying, I've got it all together? No, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. You see where he starts? My example is that I don't have it all together. I haven't attained. I, you know, I don't have all the, all the answers. I'm not the example of the, the perfect person that never struggles. And even in this struggle, look at what he says. Again, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. And then he continues, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I'm striving for that, and how do I get it? I don't make it my own. I get it by recognizing that Jesus has made me his own. I'm not changed because of my effort, my goodness, my hard work, my knowledge. It's not what I accomplish. God transforms me because 
I understand that I've been made his own, that I've been brought into this relationship through Jesus Christ. The transformation is through what he has done for me. And you might be thinking, but, but we said earlier that there's all these words of striving and effort, and there are. Well, let's look back on what he says about what that effort is. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining on towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize for the upward call in God and Jesus Christ. Do you know what he's saying? I mean, what he's saying is just so beautiful, but it's also so counterintuitive. What he's saying is, here's my example. I realize I'm a long way from being perfect. I have not arrived. I have not accomplished. But my model of maturity is that I'm constantly surrendering. I'm pressing on to surrender, to, to humility. I'm, I'm being more aware of my brokenness that I can surrender it to become more the man that God wants me to be. See, he isn't striving to perform. He isn't striving harder to do it on his own. He's trying harder to live out the truth that Jesus Christ has made me his own. And the more that I understand that, the more that I let God change me from the inside out. You see, he is presenting himself as a model of Christian maturity, but he's redefining maturity. What he's saying here is that Christian maturity is being aware of how sinful you are and how much you need Jesus. Christian maturity isn't something that we perform and I've got all the right answers and I never struggle. And so often we feel that's the case. And when we feel that's the case, I think of what Lewis shared earlier and how sometimes even in soldiers, okay, you can't show weakness. You've got to be strong. You've got to be... Well, we do many of the same things as Christians. We've got to present it. You know, the mature person is the person that doesn't struggle and that doesn't talk about their doubts and doesn't talk about their, you know, their, you know, where they failed or... And then we hide those weaknesses and we're never healed from them. And my friends, what we need to realize is that, no, Paul is saying, here's Christian maturity. It's, he's saying, follow my example of humbly acknowledging sin. Seeing my own weakness and, and being a student of one who's constantly learning and growing and changing. And then he comes back and he says even... And that's not even one picture. Look at what he says in verse 15. Let those who are, who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we've obtained. Basically what he's saying is anybody that's really mature is going to understand this. And if you think you're mature and you th think otherwise, spend some more time with God and sooner or later you'll figure out the reality. He's saying maturity is by definition someone who is aware of their sin and lives in humility before God. And if I ever get to the point that I feel like I've grown to the point where well, I've got it down pretty well, I don't need to study God's word for what he teaches me. I can read it and think, well, what's he teaching somebody else? If I ever get to that point that I don't need to hear God speak to me, then what happens is that in reality, I've moved far away from God and I've totally lost the thread of the true nature of that relationship. See, the key to becoming mature is acknowledging that you're not perfect. Think of it this way. You think on one hand, shouldn't it be something that as I grow as a follower of Christ, that God deals with sin in my life, he makes me more like him? Yeah, that should be. But what is the nature of a relationship with Christ? It's, it's about relationship. It's closeness to him. 
And if he is ultimate glory, the fact is that even if my life is being cleaned up somewhat along the way, the closer I get to him, the brighter his light shines on me and the more aware I am of my own sinfulness. And so people that are really, really close to God, their lives may be being changed, but they are even more aware of their sinfulness than when I was a brand new Christian. Because I'm so close to God that suddenly there's a lot that's being exposed. And, it, and it's painful, but it's wonderful. And it, and it totally changes the way that we live because it means that the church should be a place of vulnerability and a place of reality and a, and a place of not, not judgmentalism, but, but even celebration of those that kind of admit the sur surrender. See, maturity is, is marked by confession and by surrender, not by performance. It's not the person that has it all together. Maturity doesn't mean that we never struggle or that we never mess up or that we never have doubts. We all do. And if we understand that, we shouldn't feel that the church should be a place that we need to pretend that we do, because that's all that we could ever do. Maturity is the freedom to admit our struggle. And when we mess up, to run toward it more quickly and say, God's pointing something out, and, and here's where I surrender, and, and he's changing me. Because the closer I get to Christ, the more that he's pointing stuff out, and, and the more that I need him to change me. Now, this is hard because, again, so often we think of the church as a place where I should have it all together and, and, and I need to present it a certain way. I was, again, well, I was taught that by, by a pastor who sought to be a mentor of young pastors. And, you know, I, the idea that as a pastor you should be this model, this, and, and it sounds good. Have you ever looked up even the definition of a model? I looked up Webster. The first definition of a model is, is simply this. A model is a miniature representation of something. Okay, so as a pastor, do I want to be just a miniature representation of the real thing? You know, no, I want to be more than a miniature representation of a true follower of Christ. I, I want to be more than that. But that's what a model, when we think a model, that's what we think it's um, perfection. But in reality, all we are is a min miniature representation of the real thing. We're putting out an image. It's not real. See, here's what you need to realize. is the Bible does, in a sense, call us. It calls me to be a model. It calls those who are in leadership to be a model, but here's the model that he's called us to. The leader should not be the model of the product, but a model of the process. It's not, here, I've got it all together, but here's how God is shaping me. Maturity isn't performance, but acknowledging weakness and surrendering to his grace and, and showing, you, you know, here's how God's teaching me these things. And even with that in mind, that's where I felt like, you know, I feel that God is telling me the right way to do this, even to explain this, is to say, here's some of what God's teaching me, and to be a little bit vulnerable with this. Um, you know, over recent months, God has been convicting me of some, found, you know, some aspects of my life that I've allowed to get out of balance. And, and there's some things that have, you know, as, as a result, that, you know, that have not been healthy. I've not, you know, as you get more out of balance, you let things slide here, and you're just trying to, to balance these things. I mean, one of the, even the foundational principles for life is Sabbath, and, and as I've reflected on that, I've not done a good job understanding that, let alone even applying that. And as a result, you know, there's things that I think God has, God's warned me, even through some, some health warnings of things that it's like, okay, you can't go down this path. And by his grace, you know, it's, it's warnings. And, uh, and, and, you know, myself included, I've got a stubbornness and a pride that would be Real easy to, you know, my tendency is to justify it, to explain it away, to overlook the problem. But I want to tell you, I'm thankful that God has put people in my life that care for me enough to challenge me. 
And part of that is that we have a great group of elders. Now, for those that don't know how our church structure works, that as a pastor, I'm one of the elders. I'm not the lead elder. I'm not the guy that calls all the shots. Uh, I am one of a group of peers. And as such, there are many meetings that I'll take a leadership role, but I am equally accountable to the group as we all are. And so in this case, I, you know, a great group of elders, as they've related to me and seen me, they've started to challenge me of, hey, we see you not doing some, you know, you're not healthy. This is not good. And, and I appreciate that. And they've kind of gotten in my face. And not only about, you know, saying, okay, you need to take some weeks off, which we did a couple weeks ago. And by their challenge of just pushing me, it's in, in the month of August, I'm going to take, you know, uh, four weeks off. And just, it's more of a sabbatical of just saying, I need to regroup. I need to get healthy again. And I want to tell you, the hard part with that is, you wouldn't think it's hard, but it is. And a lot of it is, they've, they've called me on it. Okay, you know, you, know, you think that you've got to be here. You've got to hold things together. It's, it's a pride. It's a lack of trust in God. And it is. And I'm thankful that they are, are willing to call me on that. And part of what I need to say in that is that I'm thankful that I have a group that I'm accountable to. We are all accountable to spiritual leadership, and myself included. And, and again, when I'm challenged by that, that I'm accountable, and God's teaching me, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I'm involved in a small group where there's some people that I've let get to know me a little bit more, and as they've gotten to know me, to kind of speak some truth in the area of my life that, uh, you know, that are uncomfortable. And a couple of them specifically said, boy, if you're going to be taking some of this time off, you know, we think that you maybe need to go see a counselor. You know, here's if, you know, somebody new of somebody that here's a guy that works with professional you know, people in full-time uh, pastoral ministry. And, and boy, you need to, this is something we recommend. And again, that's not something, I, why do I need that? I'm not a crisis. And, and I think the whole thing is, yeah, but you're not as healthy as you need to be. And it's not that there's a crisis, but if I don't do things that are right, I, I want to avoid a crisis in the future. And so I'm thankful for people that challenge me on that. Because what we need to realize is there's a simple, basic spiritual truth. All of us have blind spots. And the truth is, none of us can see our own blind spots, myself included. And that's what people are challenging me on. It's that, it's that you've got blind spots. You can't see them, and you can't fix these things when you can't see them. And you need to find somebody that you, rec you, know, that you, uh, that you respect, and you give them the right to be able to speak into your life. And I'm thankful for that. Now, here's what I, I'm sharing something in my own life, but it's also kind of a challenge. We all have to do that. What happens when somebody speaks to us? You know, is it our nature to defend the sin? Is it, is it our nature to defend ourselves or... Um, to shift the blame or to blame somebody else or to make excuses or to look at it and you say, you know what, it's okay that I'm struggling. And, and I'm not ashamed of the fact that I've got these struggles and I'm thankful that people love me enough and they're not going to judge me because we recognize that we don't have to pretend because what it means to be mature as a follower of Christ isn't that you'd never struggle. What it means is that we acknowledge that we have this sinful nature, that we're getting closer to Jesus, that he's revealing things to us the closer we get, the more that we realize we've got work yet to do. And, and we need to model that in our own lives. We've got to say, how do I live that out? How do I give people that right? And I'm learning those lessons and, and wanting to share that because I want to be the kind of model that Paul is in Philippians 3. And part of that is not only understanding this and this redefinition of maturity, but also what it means to then forget what's behind and strain on towards what's ahead. Look at verse 13. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, a common misinterpretation of this is that some people will say, well, that means that you just forget what's behind. I've heard people say, you know, the Christian life has no rear view mirror. Um, no, that's not what the Bible says. Look at Philippians 3. What did Paul do right before this? He's talking about his past. He's not forgetting it. He's talking about it. But when he says, forgetting what is behind, lying beforehand, what he's saying is that I don't pretend it didn't happen. It's not that I pretend, well, that person hurt me, or I messed up here, and I just bury it, bury it and forget it. No, it's still there. What it means is that I let God's grace come and redefine it. He's saying a real relationship with Jesus isn't that you ignore it or deny it. What it means is that you let him come and change us. So that it's not, I'm not the person that I used to be. I have been justified. My identity is different. I will be glorified. And then in between time, I should be growing closer to that. I should be being changed. That God is in the process of changing me. But not only that, I, the things that I was before that, the things, the mistakes that I made, the, the, the scars that I bear, the way that I've been hurt, they shouldn't define me. I have a new identity. See, it means not that you re, don't remember but that you've let God change it. So we can't force ourselves to forget the past. And again, all we do when we do that, forgive, you know, bury it and ignore all we do is we deny it. We pretend. So even what he's saying, I think, here is what does it mean to forget the past? It means the past was my story. And the more I think about it being my story, the more I'm living in the past. The more that I let God redefine it, it's the future, it's God's story. God's taking what I did and he's changing its meaning. How do I understand when I've done that? You know, the best way that I know is you know you've forgotten your past when you can talk about it. And I know some people that, well, I've failed here in the past, and I've done this, and, I've, and they can't ever talk about it. They've got this guilt. Well, I know God's forgiven me, but I feel such guilt. If you can't talk about it, it's still controlling you. I've been abused in this way. This person, you know, betrayed me, and I have this hurt, and I have this pain, and, and I can't talk about it. If I can't talk about it with anybody, it shows that it's, it's still controlling you. You're burying it, but you can't dig it out because it's still there. There's still power. You know what happens is that when we learn to be able to bring, not share openly necessarily right away, but we bring it before God and his people and counsel and say, God, I need to bring healing to this. I don't want this to control me. We had the chance. I mentioned that we had been recommended to see a counselor. We went, Sandy and I went there. We spent a week with this guy, more of an intensive thing, and just say, okay, dig into our life. Dig there. And you know what? We found both of us had things that were in our past that, you know, we dealt with at the moment, you deal with, you move on, and we never went back to really unpack it and say, well, how is this impacting us? And we had scars. We had false beliefs. We had, had things in my past about things that happened that I really dig down. There's a gap between my theology and my beliefs. Here's what my theology says. Practically, I really don't believe that's what happened. And it's great to have someone to say, you know, you're blind here and you don't see this. And here, let me point it out. There are people that I thought that I forgave. I forgave as best as I knew how. And then we get somebody a little deeper and say, no, you really haven't forgiven. You haven't really let go of that. And I'm thankful that there were people that were willing to go in and dig deep and help me to forget that past. And again, my friends, you may be here and again, whether it's guilt and it's like, man, this is controlling me and I just can't get beyond it, and, or whether it's abuse or whether it's pain or whatever, if you can't talk about it, it's still controlling you. You know what I love for those that were at Easter and the cardboard testimonies? 
You know what that was? That was, here's my past, I've forgotten it. Here's my future. Here's what I was, and I've let God's spirit come and redeem it, so this is who I am. This is how I bring healing. And we need to be a place where that is normal. That's what, that's what maturity looks like. That's what the church should look like. That's what should be the gospel. We shouldn't be the army where, hey, we've got it all together. We can't admit weakness. We can't, and we're suffering in silence. No, we've got to be a place where we say the spirit of God, the community of God should be radically different, defined by grace. Not denying, and not just, you know, I'm just getting from here to here. Not by our effort, but a maturity that is, God, I agree with you that my maturity is by surrendering getting closer to you, letting you point out more, surrendering it, letting you change, and, and being this community where we're supporting each other through that process. So it means that we forget in a way that those past things don't shape our future. But it's the redemptive power of God's grace that shapes our future. Now let me just, just close in saying, you know, a lot of times we feel as a church that it's a place that we come and we try and we perform and we, we can't, you know, can't show our weakness. And, and I understand that. As much as possible, I want to say that's not only what God, not what God calls us to, but it's, it's a part of the character I want to fight against. And even to the point we're sharing some of this, and some people, again, I recognize there might be some people who say, I'm looking for a church with a perfect pastor, and this guy is certainly not it. No, I'm not the perfect pastor. And I don't, have, I don't have a perfect life. I don't have a perfect wife. I don't have perfect kids. We all struggle. But I'm not trying even trying to be the model of the product. I'm trying to be the model of the process. Because we are all in this process together. And when we jump into this process and really run towards not what I press on to make it my own, but Jesus has made me his own. And that I strive for the prize of relationship with him where it's about striving to know him so he can change me. See, what happens is when we understand that grace, where we strive, but it's striving to let him do the work, we become a radically different culture, a radically different people. And over time, it's not by our effort, but by our surrender, he transforms us into the men and women, the teens, into the church and into the community that he longs for us to be. I look forward to going there together with you.